Well, hi there, everyone. I'm Judy DL, and I'm a radioactive cockroach. And, and hello, everybody. I'm Judy Stuck. I was going to introduce you later. I've got to learn to turn your mic down before before it's your turn. But you're here now. I'm recording. I'm here now. Yeah. I'm, well, we might as well run with it. I'm I'm recording on the land of the Jajarang. Where are you? I'm recording on the land of the Wararung. And we acknowledge with gratitude that we are on their land and that sovereignty was never ceded and that we're apart, although we're still together, because of the COVID spike. My son does not like this, stay apart so we can stay together. He thinks it's really Orwellian. It's like war is peace. What do you reckon? <laughs> I think it should be stay apart so we can stay apart. <laughs> yeah, or stay apart so we can stay alive, essentially, is what they're saying, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, let, let's yeah. be realistic about it. Welcome again. I'm Judy DL and I'm a radioactive cockroach. Now, if this is your first visit to Radioactive Cockroach, you deserve a bit of an explanation about that identity. Those of us who live with the impact of sexual assault know what it is to feel a little bit cockroachy, like we should just scuttle back under the fridge. We also know what it's like to feel a bit radioactive, that people might recoil from us, like we can maybe cause some kind of unseen harm. But we are also, as radioactive cockroaches, the ultimate survivors. We avoid explicit and triggering details here, but if anything you hear today, or anywhere else for that matter, raises worrying issues for you or for someone you love, we encourage you to call in Australia 1800RESPECT. There's more information at the end of the show, on our podcast feed and on our Facebook page. Meanwhile, take it easy and take care of each other. So welcome to Radioactive Cockroach with, with Judy Starts. Yes, hello, welcome everybody. That's when you're meant to arrive and you're here now yeah. twice, so that's great. And now it's time for the Alan Stutzer. Okay, oh look, there you are. Look, listeners, I think it would be nice for me, Judy DL, to, to say what a pleasure it is to look at Judy Stutz here on Zoom because she's sitting in the TARDIS. Yes, I know. How <laughs> cool am I? <laughs> and the way it sort of cuts her head out, as she moves in and out, her hair goes up and down as if by magic. And when she reaches behind to do something on a desk or something, her arm drops off. It's like CGI in my very own lounge room. How yes. are you, Jude? Oh, pretty, pretty well, pretty well. Considering we're in the middle of a pandemic, I'm doing not too bad. Although I have to say, we have suffered here at the Stutz household a great tragedy. A huge um, tragedy from what I hear? Mind-blowing. It's a kind of crime, but it was committed by two comedians. It was. It was Laurel and Hardy. They uh, lived next door 
in their hutch. They are renowned entertaining guinea pigs of the child next door. Now, we're not sure what happened or whether the door was left open. However, they managed to escape from their prison. Onto the road? Oh, no, that would have been just too easy. Oh, so it, they, that, it's not that sort of a tragedy? It's not that, it's worse. Worse? They actually managed uh, to cross their own garden, got under the fence, trotted around our garden and discovered our veggie garden. Oh, no, they, they hacked into Mr McGregor's garden. Oh, it wasn't pretty. And at this time of year, about all we have really uh, that's, that's ready to eat and, and, and go is, is some beautiful, sweet baby lettuces. It is said that the effect of eating too much lettuce is soporific. I have never felt sleepy after eating lettuces, but then I am not a rabbit. They certainly had a very soporific effect upon the Flopsy Bunnies. These guinea pigs managed to consume each and every one of these little lettuces. Flopsy Bunnies simply stuffed lettuces. By degrees, one after another, they were overcome with slumber and lay down in the mown grass. And when we get out there, all we see are two incredibly fat guinea pigs just laying there in the garden, just sleeping, just sleeping it off. The little rabbits smiled sweetly in their sleep under the shower of grass. They did not awake because the lettuces had been so soporific. They dreamt that their mother, Flopsy, was tucking them up in a hay bed. Well, there was consideration for just a minute of introducing them to the business end of a shovel. Oh, who considered this? Uh, that was my father. Oh, I'm glad it wasn't you. That's not the stuff so we've come to know I And Mr McGregor was very angry too. I shall skin them and cut off their heads. The Flopsy Bunnies dreamt that their mother was turning them over in bed. They stirred a little in their sleep, but still they did not wake up. We considered it, we considered it, and then we realised that the neighbour's uh, kid would probably not appreciate that. Uh, and they were looking kind of cute, I must admit, as they, they simply couldn't move. We just picked them up. So we, we dropped them next door. Do these belong to you? No, <laughs> for well that they did. And the lovely lady next door was sort of gone. Oh. Luckily for the kid, she wasn't there at the time. The hutch was examined and it was clear that, you know, we couldn't see any holes, obviously. Ah, so this was just human intervention, leaving them out. Human intervention. So I'd say said child had had them out, was playing with them and popped them back in and just forgot to lock the door properly or whatever. whatever. And they got loose. So, yeah, they now have the two fattest guinea pigs on the planet. And you've got a row of very little lettuce seedlings to replace. Yes. Yeah, that's sad. Well, here's another nice mess you've gotten me into. Well, I couldn't help it. You told me I was using your brain. The end.
And now it's time for all us cockroaches to step into the spotlight. Somebody shoot out that spotlight. Spotlights ain't nothing but jive. And cockroaches, today's tip of the day, if you happen to be going along to court for any reason at all, today's tip is, it's a bit like an airport, you will be searched, make it easy for yourself. I did speak to one professional woman who was planning on a big night out and took her hair straightener with her. And the main difference, she assures us, between the court and an airport is they give your stuff back. But make it easy. Make sure you can lay everything out and that you can walk through the metal detector. Pick your stuff up and keep going. We've also had some interesting conversations with cockroaches after hearing Justice Andrew Tinney. I've been recommending a podcast series put out by the Victorian courts, Gertie's Law. You can search it wherever you get your podcasts. Gertie is the name that they give blind justice as she holds her scales and sword in the statue above the court. Gertie's Law is a great place to go and get a good insight into the court and the people who work there. Um, You'll hear some more of Justice Andrew Tinney, even. But one person was a bit bemused by their theme. Supreme Court of Victoria. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. And they shall be heard. That, they said, sounds like a gavel. Surely they said we don't have gavels. So I texted His Honour Justice Andrew Tinney saying that I was pretty sure that the Australian courts didn't have gavels. Uh, That's just auctioneers. But I wondered if he ever wished there were gavels or someone else did. And he very kindly responded, no gavels anywhere in Australia. Entirely an American thing, I believe. And no, I don't wish I had one, and nor did I long for their use in the past. Things are almost always surprisingly calm in court. When not calm, it's because someone is upset and sounding off. Almost always, it's best to let that pan out naturally. Even were an aggrieved accused or witness to swear or otherwise have a go at you, it's usually best to let it go. It's understood that people get upset about things. Banging around with a gavel would just inflame things. So that's his honour, Andrew Tinney's perspective on gavels. If you're in court, there are people in uniform there to help visitors to help you and also to assist with keeping the court calm. I gather one of the best assets a judge has is a calm and compassionate tip staff with an authoritative manner. It's a role we're going to look at in the next episode or two. We're beginning with Heather. Heather's late husband Daryl was a Supreme Court tip staff and she shares her perspective and insights into his role 
and how he felt about it. So Heather, Daryl became a tip staff and he became a man of the courts and it was, what was it that that he found fulfilling there? Well Daryl was very much um, a people person. He liked to be of service but he also liked to offer a great deal of support and he wanted to always get the best out of people. But he enjoyed the human interaction. He also quite enjoyed the theatre of the court and he realised that he had quite a good deal of power actually there in terms of handling people who were coming into the court. He could look after them. He could actually tell someone off if that was necessary. But most of all, he loved the justice system and he loved seeing it in operation. Working at that level with a judge really brought home to him how important it was to have people who were empathetic, tolerant and also understanding so that if he had an opportunity to provide someone with some comfort or support, that was always there. But at the same time, of course, allowing the judicial system to work as it should um, and obeying all the rules that went with with regard to the court. We're interrupting this account of Daryl as a Supreme Court tip staff to hear a short story. Um, saying hello to Ian. Oh, hello Judy. Welcome to Radioactive Cockroach. Delighted um, to be here. And you're in our Cockroaches in the Spotlight section because you've got experience in courts. And I just want you to listen to a little bit of Gertie's Law because we're going to talk about the noises. And they shall be heard. And they shall be heard. Now, we've had some feedback from someone saying, do they still use gavels? What's all that banging at the beginning of Gertie's Law? And his Honour Justice Andrew Tinney has assured us that he's never seen a gavel, he's never used it, just not an Australian thing. So, Ian, as someone with a bit of experience in the court, can you tell us what that banging is? Certainly wasn't a gavel. It's a banging to alert people in court that the judge is about to enter. So standing on the other side of the door is the, the judge's associate. I was a judge's associate banging on the door. So how many times do you bang? Three times. Bang, bang, bang. And on the other side, is there someone doing this? Silence in court. Silence in court. Well, not exactly. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really hope it's not a performance of trial by jury, but actually a trial by jury. So that's that's the court usher in trial by jury. Well, in Australian courts, or at least in Victoria, it's the tippy or the court tip staff um, who would say, silence, all stand. Can you tell us the most exciting thing that's ever happened when you have led the judge into court? As I came in, wearing a black robe that sort of hung down to my feet a bit, came down a few steps and got my feet caught on the end of the robe and ended up flat on my back in front of a jury. So, I mean, trial by jury is a bit of a comedy and the audience laughs. Did anyone laugh? (laughs) They'd taken the, the tip staff's injunction to be quiet, very literally, and nobody made a sound. So you just sort of had to gather yourself up as if you did this every day? Well, I certainly gathered myself and and slunk off to my little hidey hole underneath the judge. How old were you? 
I I was a newly graduated lawyer. Okay, so quite young. Quite young. Yeah. <laughs> it quite soon became a funny story. So everyone survived. Not only did nobody in the court say anything, but nobody said anything afterwards. The judge didn't say, "Oh, that was a bit funny when you fell over," and the Tippy, who might have. Didn't say anything. Oh, so well, they were res- was, was respecting <laughs> your poor wounded junior soul. <laughs> I don't think Daryl ever had anything quite like that happen to him, did he? Ever? He never sprawled in front of a jury bench. Uh, no, but he would have laughed if it, if he'd been there because the associates were sometimes um, needing a little bit of parental control. Well, he was Ian was very young. And yes, I'm sure as he they were. He would have. He would have really have appreciated someone with a bit of parental control having a bit of a giggle because it didn't happen so when he was working as a tip staff he was one of the guys with the crowns on the collar that's right yeah Yeah, and he would sit at the foot of the of the judge's bench yes and at times he would approach people in the body of the court yes yes look i've had that happen i've had the tippy come up and want to know why i was there and ask questions on behalf of the judge and i've explained that Mm. um I was just I'm just there as an observer and I'm an interested mm. member of the public and I've been very supported in that. And but I know what a tip staff is and I wasn't the least bit scared of him. But I imagine if uh if I didn't know, I might think that this was scary. Well, Daryl could be quite fierce if he wanted to be. There was a certain degree of military uh, <laughs> Training in terms of him having been a commanding officer for some time. He did become famous in the courts for being able to hiss. <laughs> some of the barristers were getting a little bit carried away. And he was well known for it, that if Daryl looked at someone, usually someone who unnecessarily verbose, yes, well, Daryl lo- would uh, give them a sort of a deathly stare and then a st- and the associates would usually fall about laughing or start sending post-it notes to him with, with words of congratulations yes, or things like yes, that. And his judge used to love that. Um, but if he approached someone in the body of the court, uh, he would have been evincing the, the famous twinkle, I imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Always. So if someone, someone approaches you in the court, they're there to help. Oh, absolutely, and that was uh, he saw that as his primary yeah. role, really. And eventually he, he retired as a tip staff. He did, and then he went into volunteering at the court, both as a court networker and also on the education team. With and in our next episode, we'll be hearing more from Heather about Daryl and the pleasure he took in working with the court network volunteers and more about the Court Network volunteers and the assistance that they provide our cockroaches. We now return to some more of His Honour Justice Andrew Tinney's reflections on the benefits to the court processes and to witnesses of the support they receive through the Witness Assistance Program. He's speaking of the Victorian courts, but there are many such programs throughout Australia and indeed throughout the world. And particularly for our listeners in the UK, the Victorian court model was modelled on an existing one in the UK. So we pick up with his honour where we left off last time. Um, The evidence is all in. You've done really well. I think we should be very proud of that. We should be very pleased that Victoria Police have done such a great job Uh, and I've certainly done as well as I can. Now the rest is up to the jury, and you should not feel that whatever that decision is, that that's necessarily a reflection on on the value of what you've done, you know, because the 
the uh, standard of proof in a criminal trial is so high. It's not it's not easy to succeed, but you know you've done your best. And I, I found that uh, that was became a more and more important part of my life as a as a prosecutor. I think people need to understand that the you know the system is geared to avoiding incorrect verdicts of guilty, and as a result, there are many. There is no question that many people who, are, who would actually be guilty uh, on a, an objective analysis of the of the evidence and of the facts uh, may be acquitted because the system is certainly weighted in favour of an accused person. And I think any of us who would ever be charged with a crime or have family members who were would be pleased with that fact. That's just the way the system works. Yeah, and it's, know, it, it just it, needs but, to be well understood when you go in. Yeah, and I think so. I think that um, uh, that's one of the areas where. Uh, having this involvement of the witness assistance people from an early stage uh, really assists in that process. You know, people people understand that all they can, all, I think most people at least, understand that all they can really do is tell the truth in the witness box and if there's a verdict of not guilty, it doesn't mean that you are not believed. Uh, you did what you could and you've been heard uh, in the court, in open court, and our system can't come up with anything better than that. So, so that's uh, that's sort of what we're stuck with, and I think for most people, I think, you know, in my experience, I think I've, I've certainly had cases where we have uh, not succeeded in front of the jury, and uh, and particularly in sex cases that can be a, well, in any case, but in sex cases that can be a devastating thing. But I still believe that if people know that they've had a chance to say on oath what happened, and that in a a fair system that's that's run in accordance with our rules and everything, that in the end the result didn't go in favour of a conviction, uh, that doesn't change the fact that they have been heard in court and that they've done what they can. I, it's not always like that. I mean, I know it's not, and that sometimes people are quite devastated, but but also people who have not been heard at all, they're devastated too. So, Well, you know, it's a devastating no, situation, and they, there's no right answer for everyone. And I think one of the things that we, we try to to hear from the people that we talk to is that there are many ways to reconcile what happened to you and to heal from it and um, using the systems to, to um, tell the truth in such a public way and is, is part of it and one that many people choose but it's not the only one and also it's not the end of the journey once you get, get through the other side of that process. There's well, a lot more true. that we can all do for one another. Well, that's exactly right, Judy, and that's the, that's the case whatever the result is. I mean, you you might sort of think, uh, starting in the process, that when if you get to the end of it and the person is found guilty, that that'll be fantastic and that uh, your life will change and you'll be able to put things behind you. Now, that might happen sometimes, but I think in reality, you know, a, a, even a guilty verdict doesn't put things back the way things were before the crime was committed. We leave his honour there for today. In the next few episodes... We'll be expanding our conversations around what good support looks like and feels like for people who are working through formal processes. We'll speak with the CEO of an independent organisation that manages the complaints brought within a number of churches and other community-based entities. Many of these complaints relate to sexual assault and harassment. She draws on her extensive professional experience in providing direct support to people impacted and harmed by these behaviours. She'll be helping us understand the impact of processes and the variety, extent and range of support that different people need.
and we'll be returning with a couple more stories relating to the question we asked in episode one. So you gotta let me know Should I stay or should I go? Now it's time for all of us cockroaches to step out of the spotlight and into the comfort zone. Lay down the burden of your heart I know you'll never miss me <laughs> It's too heavy! It's too heavy! Put it down! Here! Here! It's lighter when you let go, isn't it? <laughs> Because everything about the health world is annoying to me. All the food, everything's like kale and keto and kombucha. A lot of K's. I see three K's in a row, I'm like, nah, I'm out. <laughs> something unsettling about it for me. Cockroaches, welcome to Cockroach Relief. We are fortunate today to be joined by comedian, actor, podcaster, Logie winner, and all-around funny guy, Dilruk Jayasinghe. Welcome, Dilruk. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, feel honored to be among this many cockroaches at one given time. I mean, <laughs> it is, feels like a post-apocalyptic world that we're living in. So I feel like cockroaches being the only survivors of most nuclear attacks, I think uh, this feels nice to be part of the survivors. Yeah, and you're in Melbourne at the moment. So you're mm-hmm. experiencing yet another extended <laughs> lockdown. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And with, uh, with the harder bit of pill to swallow, which is not quite sure if there's an end inside at this moment. So yeah. I've just had to start, you know, p- pick and choosing when I engage with that, that, that narrative about what's happening with the world. Because even my family WhatsApp group, we have one that is just, you know, for the last five, six years. And then I created a new WhatsApp group just for the virus updates, because I was like, I don't want any information about what's happening in the world that is negative to sort of soil seeing, you know, pictures of my niece every morning. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I'm like, let's yeah. keep this nice and clean for happiness and the other one for inf- information because information is necessary. It's just that the information is a bit painful at the moment. Yeah. Is there anything in particular that is helping you cope with this lockdown? I mean, it's it's a really weird and probably fairly shitty time for people in the, you know, performing arts I guess, you know, you're someone that's talked about mental health a lot. Mm-hmm. What are you doing to look after yourself and keep busy during this time? I uh, I have to do a whole varying, like a whole bunch of things. I realize it's not the one thing that, you know, helps me through it. Uh, but also I've learned since lockdown part one, as we call it here in Melbourne, mm. uh, is that I can tick all the boxes off and still feel like crap. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I think the lesson I've taken into lockdown too is learning that in spite of ticking all those boxes, there's still going to be some dark days. Uh, I, tr- I get up and I'll do, um, I'll do meditation uh, and then I'll do a gratitude list. And the way my, I've sort of ad- adapted my gratitude list to have like a yesterday, today, tomorrow feel. So yesterday I look at three things that went well for me. Uh, and then I'll say today, what are the three things that I can do uh, like an act of kindness for someone? So either calling up a maid or, you know, donating something. So that's three for today. And then tomorrow is three things that I'm excited about for tomorrow. So that kind of keeps me in this moment of past, present and future with all kind of positive aspects of it. Now, admittedly, the tomorrow's excitement one is really hard these days because it's genuinely tough to look at the calendar that's blank and go what can I get excited about for tomorrow but I think that's why the the activity is good because it forces you to go all right think harder what can be good what can be good I'm like well for example I struggled on 
Sunday to think of something to be excited about for today. I'm, uh, you know, no offense, I should have put the podcast down as I'm getting excited to talk to best. But no, what I mean, is, uh, I, I just was like, you know, really racking my brain. And then I realized, okay, if I clean up my bathroom and kitchen tonight on Sunday, that means when I wake up on Monday, I wake up to a clean bathroom and kitchen. And I thought, all right, that can be the thing to look forward to. And therefore that informed my, you know, chores for the day to make sure that I got that done so that I have something to be excited about in the morning. So it's this, it sounds so basic and it sounds so, you know, I think naff is the word, but it (laughs) works well for me because I was someone, at least in the last 10 years or so, I would, you know, unashamedly say that I'm very good at gratitude. Like I, it's the one thing that I think comes quicker to me than most people do. So I kind of jokingly say that it's my only true talent. Like if talent is something that you can quickly jump to uh, before anyone else can, that's what I'm able to do, you know? So I thought, okay, now that I know that I have that, how can I get better at it? So that's why I started adding these other two uh, layers to it, which is what happened good yesterday? What's something nice I can do today? And what's something uh, that uh, I can look forward to tomorrow? And so uh, even the thing of showing some one kindness is to me, at least in itself is quite a selfish pursuit because I do it because it makes me feel good. <laughs> and I'm like, but no one's losing in that scenario, right? Someone else is receiving something hopefully positive from me. And at the same time, it's making me feel good. So ultimately, um, it still feels a bit selfish, but I'm like, ah, well, no one's losing out. So still, there's three things that sort of, you know, I, I try and see if I can call up a friend or if there's like, um, uh, you know, I, I'll go and drop off some croissants at a friend's house who's working from home or whatever. Like just something that just keeps me, and I, and I feel good after that. Then I'll do a bit of exercise. Then I'll make sure I talk to either my mom, dad, or my brother. And what I've learned in from lockdown one is that just because I tick them all off doesn't mean I'm not going to feel like crap because mm. there were days, in fact, in the first round, after like three weeks of ticking those goals every day, I just felt like I hit a wall and I just couldn't get out of bed. And I remember being angry that I was feeling like that. And I'm like, why are you feeling shit? You've done everything. And it's like, no, you can't control this. Like, of course, you're going to be like, there's a pandemic and you're scared about not seeing your family ever again. And you've lost your career. And of course, your brain's in overdrive, like just chill out. And I sort of try to explain it to my mom with the analogy that, you know, if you're out in the sun and the sun's belting out and you're sweating, you don't get angry at your body for sweating. You're like, oh, that's what my body does when it's, you know, feeling warm, it starts sweating. You'll be annoyed at the sun. You might be like, oh, I need to cool down. But you wouldn't self-hate your body for reacting that way. But Mm. because... I was doing the identical thing, not realizing that the pandemic is the equivalent of the sun and the reaction to the pandemic is me feeling sad. I was judging my brain and body for reacting in sadness without realizing that's just the mechanism that it has to do to deal with it is to feel sad. So shut up and just cry on the couch and enjoy it. You know? Yeah, it's like for almost everybody that's alive now, it's a really unprecedented time and we, we don't know how we're meant to feel I I have found myself feeling bad for feeling bad. It's okay. And the other thing mistake I was making uh, is that um, uh, I was judging my level of productivity in this situation against how productive I was pre-pandemic. And that's another unfair uh, sort of standard to set for yourself because 
you know, again, the analogy I used was if you're watching a soccer match and you have certain expectation of your players to do certain things, but if suddenly the players were told, all right, here's a tennis racket because uh, you've got to defend your head because the goal, the goalie is going to start pegging golf balls at your head now. They're like, wait, what? Yeah, but we still need you to kick the same amount of goals. It's like, no, that's yeah. not fair. You changed the rules on me. <laughs> I've, been, I've been playing this game for the last 35 years and you're going to change the rules now. It's like, yeah, too late. Watch out. Here's a golf ball. So yeah. you would be kinder to those players <laughs> saying that you won't be able to perform the level that you were because you're still learning these new rules and halfway through suddenly another new rule comes in so of course you'll be kinder to watching them but somehow when it's yourself you never show that same level of care or kindness or compassion and one of my little tricks to do when I start self-hating like that is to say if this was happening to my best friend or my brother how would I want them to be treated by me and Mm -hmm. then I try and mimic that because I would never say the things that I say to myself to those people I love. Sharp left turn into Mm -hmm. another topic entirely you are someone who has had a really interesting life or upbringing in terms of religion. Your father, I'm hoping I get this right, your father is Buddhist, your mum is Muslim, and you went to Catholic school. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering how that exposure to all of those religions at a young age and whether it impacted how you engage with the world. Mm. Uh, it is so complex uh, the impact of that. And I think what that did is by having such mixed religion. So gr- I grew up in the Muslim house because uh, dad worked overseas. So there was about 14 people in the one house and my brother and I were the only non-Muslim. So I had, yeah. was, uh, you know, uh, and then in the Catholic school, there was like 40 students per class and, you know, maybe three non of three of three to six non-Catholic. So you'd have like three Muslims and three Buddhists or whatever. So mm-hmm. no matter where I went, I was always a minority. <laughs> and, yeah, wow. yeah. And so for me, I would say what he had done is it made me realize that given how all three sort of faiths or philosophies felt like they were the right ones and the others were wrong, using logic, that means at a minimum, if one of them is right, at a minimum, two of them are wrong. Mm. And which means that the likelihood is that all three of them are wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, wow. So I ended up becoming an atheist, but I'm an atheist who learned the importance of religion and therefore I am tolerant of people's beliefs and mm-hmm. the importance that religion can play. But mm-hmm. I think having two parents who have different beliefs, potentially opposite beliefs, you know, dad believes in rebirth, mom believes in the, you know, in heaven, Uh, you know, there's a creator in mom's version in Buddhism, there's not so much of a creator, like, there's so much difference, so many differences between the two, that I feel that because I saw two people still love and respect each other's and their beliefs and do their own thing. So dad has his little prayer room, mom's has a little prayers. that if they can make it work, then it's fine. Do you know what I mean? Like I can see that when someone in the family dies, you know, dad thinks of it as like, oh, you know, they're going on to another life and hopefully a better life. And whereas mom is like, oh, I'll be reunited with them, you know, when I join them, you know, so they find comfort in those concepts. So what kind of asshole would I be to go, well, it's meaningless and it's just the darkness and that's what I live in. And this is, <laughs> this is what I try to tell people. I kind of wish I wasn't an atheist. Like being an atheist sucks sometimes because, yeah, um, it, yep. you know, I, I trying to find meaning in what you believe is a meaningless existence is a pretty, pretty awful thought process sometimes. And to me, ultimately, 
it circles back to what we talked before, which is about how to, you know, how can I make myself happy? And luckily, because I'm not a sociopath, my happiness <laughs> is linked in being kinder to other people at times. There is no guarantees about what happens after we go. The one guarantee we have is right now. If I've added more good than bad, by the time I've I'm evicted from this share house of the of the world. Uh, then I've done something that was positive because it's. I, I, do you know there's a song called uh, "Let the Mystery Be"? Uh, I forget who sings it, but it's the theme song from the TV show Leftovers, and oh, okay. it essentially essentially deals with the idea that some people believe this, some people believe that. Uh, I'm just gonna let the mystery be because I, you know, I believe in love. Ramadan is one of my favorite times of the year because as a non-Muslim, I got to have like five meals a day because they'd wake up before like 4.30, 5 a.m. to prep themselves for the day of fasting. Yeah. And I would get up and eat with them, but then go to school, <laughs> have breakfast, lunch, dinner. Everyone would get together at the dinner table to break fast at the same time. Mm. And it was, you know, uh, I, I can get teary just thinking about it right now, how much it meant to me to be able to sit at the table and try all this delicious food. And which, to be honest, is something I'm working with my therapist to try and undo because there's so much connection between food and love that I'm yeah. trying that that as soon as I feel any sense of loneliness or sadness that I just feel that if I have this fried chicken, I will feel more <laughs> c- protected by my grandma. <laughs> the way I rationalized it is with the help of my therapist is that it's uh, ultimately comes down to what's the kindest thing you can do for yourself. So mm. the reason we have compulsive, uh, well, I'll put, speak for myself at least that yeah. way. No, I'm not speculating, but uh, the reason I have compulsive behaviors like, uh, you know, drinking too much, um, being lazy and, you know, overeating is because as my therapist said, it's because they work. It's because yeah. in that moment, you do feel a comfort, you do feel a numbness, you do get to breathe easier for a little bit, because you've given yourself in a world that's increasingly losing control of your grasp of what you can, uh, your place in it, that being in control of this behavior is still something that gives you joy. That's why you go towards it, because if it didn't do the job, then you wouldn't keep doing it, right? Yep. So, so firstly, recognize why you do it. You don't do it because you're, I, I don't do it because I'm weak. I'm because I'm, 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 I have bad willpower, anything like that. It's because it works and it has mm. worked for me for 35 years. So why would I stop now? That's the first thing. The second thing to realize that, yeah, in that moment, maybe ice cream at 2 a.m. is the kind thing to do because I'm lying in bed, genuinely afraid that, uh, the last time I saw mom and dad was the last time I hugged them, you know, genuinely afraid that I might not see my niece till she's, you know, five, six years old. Who knows? Like those fears are so difficult for, for, you know, the most positive person, let alone someone like me who, you know, is someone who doesn't think that any of this has meaning, you know? Yeah. Like, so when you're having that existential crisis, yeah, the kind thing to do is to maybe have a tub of ice cream because you just get to sleep a bit better that in that moment or whatever. But if that behavior kept going for like, you know, seven days a week, 10 days a week or whatever, uh, you know, in a row, then in that moment, the kind thing to do would be to try and slow it down. When I have my food cravings, which are monstrous right now (laughs) in this situation, (laughs) I try to ask myself such an annoyingly basic question, which is, do I really want these chips or do I just need a hug right now? Sometimes it's a chips and I'll go with the chips, but yeah. sometimes <laughs> it is a hug and, uh, you know, it's like call up a friend. How about we 
look through some photos of my niece. How about I, you know, something that I know will give me that sense of connection. That is what I'm truly wanting because way back before I can even remember somewhere, the idea of if I ate a lot that I'll get a pat on the back and my grandma will smile at me for saying, good boy, you've, you've finished two of me, you know, two of my cooking. And that's what, unfortunately, the wiring that's in my brain is saying, if you do that, then you'll get protected by your, you know, tribe. But yeah. really, I can find other ways of protecting it now. Where I am, where like, you know, you're living alone away from three of the closest people in your life, you know, that sense of belonging is needed and it shows up in frame through the food or sometimes through validation on social media. Like, mm -hmm. so I'm aware of it. And sometimes I give more into it than I want to. But in that moment, I go, well, that's, that's fine. I see why you're doing this. Go for it. If you need to, you know, if you need to jump on Tinder and feel validated, go for it. <laughs> what is the best gig you've ever done? Uh, it, it would have to be the, in November, 2017, the first time my mom and dad got to see me headline. So it was at the comics lounge in North Melbourne and mm -hmm. the comics lounge is like a 400 seat or something like that. 500 sometimes. Is uh, that where you did the, I saw you at the bushfire relief. Yeah. Yeah. At the start of the year. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that one uh, is happens to be the venue that I did my first ever gig at. Oh wow. Uh, yeah. 21st of the, uh, September, 2010 was my first ever gig. And it was in front of 20 people that night because yeah. it was their uh, new comedians night you know, uh, and I bombed. And so for me, uh, you know, to fast forward seven years later and being the headliner of the very club uh, mm. and then having mum and dad see that happen. It, in fact, there's a photo that I have on my uh, phone as my wallpaper is them, oh. uh, uh, standing and I like, and there's my brother uh, and me outside my uh, show in Soho, London. That was the first time oh, I brought wow. So I have that on my phone wallpaper because believe it or not, to me, that November 2017 gig was the peak of my career. And that's pre-Logie. pre, that's pre -Logie. That's, Yeah, that's, yeah. that's pre-a lot of things that most people would consider yeah. the peak. So weirdly, I drew a line in the sand at that point because I went, all right, well, anything from this point onwards is just bonus. It's just the victory lap and treat it as such. Now, that doesn't mean I don't work hard. In fact, I would yeah. say I work harder because now I'm coming at it from a lot more of a fun perspective going, how cool is it that my victory lap includes things like, you know, winning a Logie or, you know, uh, filming my stand-up special for, for Amazon. Like those things are huge, huge, huge things. But they were so far removed from anything I ever dreamed of that I don't hold as big an attachment to that idea as the idea of my parents seeing it happen. So that's, that's my best gig. Worst gig uh, has to go to 2016, a year before that in Gold Coast. And it was like, you know, uh, betting, betting tables at the, uh, you know, screens at the back, a TAB, mm. um, a 40th birthday happening in the corner. It was a mess. <laughs> and I had to do 40 minutes and three minutes into my sets, uh, a guy in the front in a Broncos top goes, piece off stage, you curry munching prick. So oh, God. Yeah, that has potentially got to be the worst. Uh, but uh, funny how life is, like as awful as the gig is and stands as my, you know, worst ever gig. Uh, it's the only gig I've got a standing ovation for <laughs> because I dealt with that heckler for so long, for 40 minutes and eventually until him and his, all his mates left, that it was only like left with like six people in the crowd because I just kept putting out fires. And then all these six people that left stood up and clapped for me because I survived the 40 minutes. Wow. <laughs> and then I walked backstage and I swear to you, best, like 
I fell on the ground convulsing from fear because I'd been holding that panic of being punched in the head, the fear of racism, all of that held for 40 minutes that, because I tried to look confident. I tried to look like I know what I'm doing. But as soon as the curtains were uh, closed, I was just on the floor shivering in a mess. Like I was on my knees, crouching, shivering. It was, uh, it, it has to be the worst. <laughs> Traumatic, my God. <laughs> I came here uh, for university to get a degree in accounting because, you know, some stereotypes are true. And, um, <laughs> and the plan was quite simple. All I had to do, like, my parents spent a fortune on me and all I had to do was get the degree, go back to Sri Lanka, get a job, get married, have kids, and then die. Simple. <laughs> but things were not... You moved here when you were 19. You're mm -hmm. in your 30s now. Mm -hmm. You've obviously decided you like Australia and you want to stay. What is your favorite thing about living in Australia? That is a, such a good question. Mm -hmm. uh, if I had to nut it down, I think ultimately it is about what Australia uh, represents to me. It represents my country. <laughs> like it, for me, it feels mine. Like I yeah. feel like I came here on my own. I know my, like my dad, and mom supported me financially, emotionally. Once I got here, I had all my, fr you know, so many things that from Sri Lanka, like my dad's mate is the one who picked me up from the airport. And mom's, you know, old teacher mate's son is the one who his couch I crashed on in the first couple of days. So I'm not like, you know, I made it on my own. I'm not saying that at all. I couldn't have done any of this without the support and love of my parents and my family. But having said that, Everything that I have here right now from my friendship group to my career is stuff that I chased and I, yep. you know, achieved. So I feel like Australia reminds me of what I am capable of doing if I put my mind to it. And there's a few things in life like that that I try and remind myself, why do I like this thing so much? Why do I like running? It's because, you know, I was 125 kilos at the start of 2018. And then me just saying, I'm going to walk for 10 minutes a day represented me saying, I'm not going to be this version of myself. I always told myself I was someone who doesn't yeah. exercise, you know, things like that. It's just about what it represents. So to me, I think Australia represents um, you know, my second half of my life that uh, I lived more on my terms than, yeah. uh, than, uh, than anywhere else. Duke, thank you so much for talking to Radioactive Cockroach today. Um, if, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If any of our listeners are wanting to see more of you, they can find your comedy special Mm -hmm. on Amazon yeah it's on um, Amazon Prime it's called Bundle of Joy uh, and uh, it's pretty much uh, the best of uh, my stand-up it's probably the best version of my hour that has ever you know been put together so mm -hmm. it's, it's a really good starting point if people want to see what my stand-up's like uh, but also if you don't have that it's an audio version of it's on Audible uh, oh, so you can, you can get it from there uh, otherwise you know uh, my podcast is called Fitbit Pod and it's about where me and my friend who were about 125 kilos each at the start of 2018 decided to have a bet to see which of us can get under 100 kilos <laughs> no it's it's a really it's a really good podcast I've thank really you thank it. you Bess. i'm really glad you like it dill thank you so much this has been really great i really oh, appreciate my your time thank you so much for having me Thanks for listening and please come back next time. And remember, take it easy and get some help if you can't. 1-800-RESPECT in Australia. 
the Samaritans on 11-61-23 in the UK and in the US, 1-800-273-TALK. These and other resources are on our Facebook page and podcast feed. Today's soothing water-based musical offering is a cover of Kavisha Marzella's setting of John Macefield's poem Sea Fever. It's on her album, Mermaids in the Well. See you next time. I must go down to the seas again To the lonely sea and the sky And all I ask is a tall ship the star to steer her by and the wheels kick and the wind song and the white sails shaking and a grey mist on the sea's face and a grey dawn breaking I must go down to the seas again a wild call and a clean call that may not be denied and all I ask is a windy day with the white clouds flying and the flung spray and the blown spume and the seagulls crying I must go down to the seas again, to the vagrant gypsy life, to the gull's way and the whale's way, where the wind's like a wetted knife. And all I ask is a merry yarn from a laughing fellow rover and a quiet sleep.